I'm like black coffee in that um, you either, you either, like everybody has strong opinions about black coffee. I, I'll show you. How many guys love black coffee? Raise your hand if you love black coffee. How many guys hate black coffee? Raise your hand you hate black coffee. And who's like, oh, I, I could drink it or not. It's not that big of a deal. Okay, about, about six of us. What I'm saying is that like everybody either loves black coffee or you hate it. And then you got like six people that are neutral about it. And my personality is so loud all the time that I'm like that. Like I, I either, I either, I either pull people towards me or I push them away. And everybody in the middle, like you become like the focus of my attention. And like I'm either going to push you farther away or draw you closer. Like I, I wish I had a more muted, uh, not muted. I just wish I had a volume knob on the Seanness of Sean. Uh, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, like I'm a, I'm a little too much me sometimes is all I'm saying. And that's, that's either a good thing if you're like me or it's, it's, it's a bad thing. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, is incredibly sweet. She's, she's like chocolate milk. And everybody loves chocolate milk. Am I right? Like even those of you who are lactose intolerant, you hate being lactose intolerant because you can't drink chocolate milk. Right? Like everybody loves chocolate milk, but, but, um, black coffee, it, you, it's a, it's a love or, love or hate thing. And I, I wish I was more chocolate milk, uh, than I, than I am black coffee. And my wife is helping me with this. Uh, she's, she's trying to show me where that volume knob is. And sometimes we'll be in a social setting and, and the Sean of me will be like really high. It'll be like a 10. And she'll go, she'll go, she'll look at me like at a party or whatever. She'll go, just a little bit, just a, just a little bit. Turn it, turn it down a little bit. And then sometimes I'll go, I'll go like too far down because now I'm like, now I'm embarrassed and self-conscious. And I turn it down to a one or a two. And then she goes, now don't be a baby, right? Like don't be a baby. Like you can like ride that at like five or six. That's seven's even fine most of the time. But for me, I don't know why it is. It's just like like it's like one or ten, ha! right? Like like uh, all the time. Now I've tr I've tried to. Fix this about me and reinvent myself. And, you know, like I'm going to be a, like I remember the first time that this dawned on me that I could be a different person was when we, I grew up in Orlando and then we were moving to Denver the week before my senior year started. And I went to a, a small, a small church and a small Christian school, a very popular in, in the South back in the 80s. And so I went to a very, very small Christian school and everybody knew me from like fifth grade. Uh, and then at my church, everybody, everybody knew me also. And, and everybody knew that I hadn't had a girlfriend yet. Well, now I didn't want to get a girlfriend because that girlfriend was going to know that she was my first girlfriend. And I don't want her to know that she's my first girlfriend, right? And then everybody was wanting to know if I, was, if I was going to kiss her. And I didn't want the girl that I kissed to know that that was my first kiss. Does that make sense? Like I wanted my kiss to blend in. Like I didn't, I, I want to, I, no, I, I wanted her to be amazed by it. Don't get me wrong. I just didn't want her to know that it was the first kiss. Does anybody, am I the only one who's still at 52 thinking about this stuff? Anybody else? Right, so we were moving, and we were in Kansas, and we were at a rest stop uh, somewhere out in the middle of cornfields, or actually, it's wheat fields out there. Uh, Iowa's the corn, and Kansas is the wheat. And uh, so we're on I-70. I'm at a gas station, and then it dawns on me: nobody in Denver knows that I've never kissed a girl. Oh, ha, ha! I'm gonna kiss them all now, right? Like that's how I felt about. Like I'm, I'm. They, they don't know I'm not Don Juan. Like, I can show up in Denver and be all like, hey, how you doing, right? Like, that's, don't do that. But I'm just saying, I could do that, and they wouldn't know. Like, if I went back to Orlando and was like, that, like, like who are you? Like, we know you never had a girlfriend before or whatever. And, but anyway, so I got to Denver. Doesn't matter. Anyway, I'm just saying, I've tried to 
reinvent myself and there's still even things about me uh, that are broken that I, I want to fix. And, and I would imagine that there's probably things about you that you'd recognize could, could be better. Like if, if you know there are things about you that could be better, raise your hand. If you're sitting next to somebody who should be better, raise your hand. <laughs> so even if you ain't honest, the person next to you will be. Like we, like who I am as a person, like is uh, like sometimes I'm really like really okay with that, and then there's other times that I'm very insecure about uh, like like who I am and my identity. If I can use it in like a, a like a, a a meta word here, like a a larger overview of my life, is is that my identity. Is, 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 is developing uh, who I am as a person. Like, I'm not the person I was five years ago. Can you say that? Like, you're, you're probably a little bit different. Like, and, and it's not that all of us have evolved either. Some of us have devolved in the last five years. Uh, I've, if you've ever worked at a job that you hated, but then you couldn't quit, you know what I, I'm talking about. That's a, that's a really miserable way to live your life. Uh, like, you can go to some really dark places in your head because you just feel, you feel trapped, you feel stuck, and you, there's nothing you can do. And, and I had a job like that, and I hated my job. Um, it, I, was, I was miserable. And, and truthfully, once I wasn't working there, anytime I would drive by there, I'd get physically nauseous. <laughs> Has anybody had a place, like when you go back to that place from your past, you have a physically negative reaction? Any, okay, so some of us, some of us, all right. Um, the rest of you guys are superhumans, congratulations. Um, but normal people, we struggle with things like this. And uh, Billy Jane had said to me uh, toward the end, uh, like at year three there of, of my, my year three of darkness and, and miserableness, she said, uh, this place is like, you need, you need to quit this job because it's changing you and it's not for the better. Right? Like that's like that kind of stuff happens. So uh, who I am now as a person is not who I was. And, and also who I am now probably isn't, uh, the person I'm, I'm going to be. And in between the person I am and the person I'm going to be uh, are all of the influences that I give access uh, in, into my life. And um, yeah, and, and so who, who we are is, is, is changing. Um, and and, and I, have, I have many different identities uh, because I'm a CIA spy. And no, I'm just kidding. I uh, I just have multiple passports. Um, now, that's not true either. So I had to say it though. The ADD in me wouldn't let me let it go. But, um, but, but I'm a dad. I'm, uh, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a friend. I'm a neighbor. Uh, I play Thursday night old man league at the Y, so I'm an athlete. Um, I am. I can post up on those dudes in the walker, and I leave. Like, a, like they got broken hips anyway, so it's not that tough. But... Like, I, I'm, I'm an athlete, I'm, I'm a, a coach, um, I, I'm a mentor, I'm a student still, right? Like, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm an employer, I'm, I'm a boss, right? Like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a friend. Um, so I have all these different, different parts of my identity. Uh, but not all aspects of your identity are equal. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, which, is the greater, which is the greater identity and which should influence the other more? Am I more responsible to be a, a, a father or a coach? Like which identity should carry greater weight? A father, right. I'll give, you, I'll give you one that I think a lot of Americans get mixed up. Am I more of an American citizen or do I have a greater responsibility as a Christian? Because they're not the same thing. That might be a surprise to some people. 
right? But there's all these different aspects of who you are as, as a person. Um, I'm uh, like, I, I see myself through different lenses. Uh, I see myself uh, as, as a guy who's responsible to make, to make money for, for my family, to like, like provide an income. So there's like a, a financial side of who I am. There's a, a sexual side of who I am, right? There's a relational side to who I am. There's a, uh, like a business side to who I am. There's a family side to who I am. And, and these different expressions of my identity uh, do not carry the same weight. And as we are all uh, becoming somebody, uh, there's not a shortage of influences speaking into the type of person that you should become. If you watch one channel uh, of news, it'll say that this is what you should be most enraged about. And if you watch the other news channel, they'll tell you, no, this is what you should be most enraged about. This channel says, no, this is the cause you should be most passionate for. And this one says, this is the one you should be most passionate for. Uh, on my Instagram and TikTok. I follow different people that tell me that at this stage of my life, I should be at this place. And if I'm not at that place, then what's wrong with me? Right? Like during COVID, uh, everybody on my TikTok was like, start like side hustles. And if you ain't got a side hustle, like you ain't, right? Like crypto and, and NFTs. And like, if you ain't doing something, then, then you ain't nothing. Right? Like that's, those are the kind of things that are, I follow this, this Asian kid. He's 23. His name is Yuzi something. He's a, He's, he's making $700,000 a month. And he says that by the time you're 30, if you're not doing this, then bro, you ain't hustling. And I'm like, I'm 52 and I want to slap him. I got a kid older than him. Who the freak, right? Like, like who does he think he is, right? Like, and so the thing is, is we're all measuring where we're at against some type of standard, some metric to feel whether or not I'm okay where I'm at, right? Like you do this too. And some of you, it's very difficult and you become very insecure in your identity because your younger brother makes more money than you. Like that's freak, that's thinking hard, am I right? Like that is hard when your younger brother makes way more, because you could have killed him before he ever got out of the house. I say he owes you commission. You let him live. All the older brothers say amen. Oh, y'all didn't do it because you're afraid of your younger brother. He's probably your boss. You work for him. Right? Or your younger sister. Like she's got this beautiful family and blah, 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 blah. Right? And then, and then you got your family. <laughs> and that, and that kind of makes us really insecure. Because we're like, like is my, is like my measure, like where's my, who's my ruler? Like where's my ruler to say whether or not I'm, I'm doing okay? Because all of us really want the same thing. I want to be happy. Do you want to be happy? I want to be happy. And I've got all these different people speaking into my life, telling me that this is what I need to make me happy. And, I, and the problem is, is I've got everybody saying different things. And so it makes it very difficult for me to measure where I'm at. Like, even as a pastor, how many of you guys have ever heard of uh, Rick Warren? He wrote the Purpose Driven Life book, raise your hand, or Saddleback Church. It's probably one of the most influential churches in the country. He's the one that opened up uh, prayer for uh, uh, Obama's second uh, term of when he was inaugurated. The second time as president, there, there was a guy that, that, okay, one of my best friends, he retired this week. 
And one of my best friends became the pastor of that church and they never interviewed me. <laughs> I feel some kind of way about that, right? Like he's younger than me too. Like, we, like we're in the same place. But then like as far as like influence, he just like, like just like ran way out in front of me. Why don't you, look at you. She down here, in the, right down here. And she said, yeah, he went way out in front of you. Thank you. I already knew that. I don't need you confirming it. For confirming it. And it's not like they didn't know who, who, I, who I am because I got to speak at two of their conferences and I felt like I needed to tell you that so I could be okay with me. Right? Like it's, it's that kind of thing. And so whether you're a pastor or in real estate or in education or in the medical field, like we're always like, am, am I where I need to be so I can feel okay uh, uh, about, about myself? And the really cool thing is that in this new series that we're, we're starting today, you're going to discover that God doesn't want you to be a different person, right? Like God doesn't want you to be a different person. Uh, and this is a study in the book of Philippians. And at the end of the book of Philippians, Paul says, I have learned the secret to be content no matter where my life ended up. Like, that's happy. Like, like cool with where I'm at. That's, that's, that's what all of us want. I want to get to the place where I can go, I am really cool with where my life is. Like, all of us... And like, if you're really unsettled right now, it's because you're not cool with where you're at. And so you feel frustrated. Like I've got, there are people in my life, I want to be careful, I don't want to give too much of a description of who they are, that are not happy with where their life is and they're, and they're miserable. And it's because in their head, they had drawn a ruler of where they would be at this stage. And they drew that ruler a long time ago and they didn't end up as high on that ruler as they thought they should be at this stage of life. And so they're incredibly driven, which they see as, as a, a good quality. And, it, and it's not a bad quality uh, at all, but their drivenness is because they feel that they still need to be that before they retire. Like they gotta, like, and, and like that person, the problem with the way that they're driven is they're not happy with where they're at, right? And it's that they can't be happy until they're making that kind of money or until they get that kind of influence. Like they're never content with who they are or where they're at. And Paul said, there is a way for you to get to the place where you would say, like, I'm, I'm not where I'm going to be but I am right now where I'm supposed to be. Like, I, 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 I need to be able to say that. And, and that's, that's what we're looking at. Because in all of these different ways in which we express our identity, there's a lot of those things that are actually threatening to hijack the person you were created to be. Because you and I don't get to, we play a part but because we're not the ones who came up with the idea of us, ultimately, we're not the ones to determine what we were created for. Like, you didn't choose to be born. Nobody in this room chose to be born, right? <laughs> Your mom chose you to be born, which we're thankful to God for that, right? And there may have been other times when your mom and dad came together 
and no baby came. And that's the end of that science lesson. But, um, but this one time, here you are. What was the difference between all those? Like even your mom and dad didn't choose for that time to end up being you. Like that was out of their hands also. I mean, that's the end of that science lesson. But the reason why your mom got pregnant that time is because that time was when God knew you would get to show up. And that was awesome. That was... <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm think, yeah, absolutely. And, and Ephesians chapter 2 says that when you turn from sin and begin following Jesus, when, like you're born with a canvas, right? Like you're, but the canvas already has markings on it because the Bible says we're born with a sin nature. And we spend our whole lives drawing on it as best we can, just like a little kid trying to paint a masterpiece. And at some point, we get to the end of trying to be our own, our own master, right? And then we recognize that I, I'm never, I can't undo the mistakes of my past. And we'll get to the place where we just give our canvas to God. Like I, and it's when we come to the place that we believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead on the third day with new life, that we recognize that it's Jesus' resurrection that gives me a chance at a new life with the same canvas. So the canvas stays the same. But when I turn from my sin to begin following, following the ways of Jesus, God just kind of like, he cleans the canvas and he starts drawing on this again. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to get to do the works that he prepared for us long ago that we should, we should live in them. So long before my canvas ever came into existence, God planned that someday my canvas would show up in his studio and he would get to paint on me, right? So there is a masterpiece. Like God is the one who knows exactly how you should live your life to get to the place where you are most content. Because he's the one who came up with the idea of you existing in the first place. But I think one of the things that we need to acknowledge is that we're probably not right now the finished product. Right? Anybody in here think they don't raise your hand because you'd be the most unself-aware person in here and I don't want you to embarrass yourself. Right? Like none of us are the finished product yet. We're in the process of becoming, which means that God is going to continue. If you're a follower of God, He's going to continue showing you parts of your canvas that you're still scribbling on where you need to give from the brush. And the truth is, some of us don't want that part of our canvas changed because we like scribbling over there. Right? But that's going to be the thing that's going to ultimately rob you of the identity you were created for. And that's the idea behind this series. And we're looking at uh, the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul wrote Philippians. There's a couple of things I wanted to say that are in my notes that I want to be in your notes if you're in life group because it'll come up. And that's this, whoever you are right now may not be who you were actually created to become. That's one of the thoughts. The other thought is that God's going to keep working on you until you become the person he created you to be, which is awesome. So this new series is about you stepping into the identity God created for you and the one that is constantly being hijacked by influences around you. So this letter of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. Philippi is in modern day Greece. In the Roman world, it was in what they referred to as Macedonia. The Apostle Paul had never started a church in Macedonia until he did, but the Apostle Paul, uh, is, he's the one who wrote this letter to the church that he started in Philippi, which was in Macedonia. And, and the city of Philippi is unique 
even within the Roman Empire, and that it wasn't just a city in the Roman Empire. It was actually a, a Roman, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm like, it was a Roman colony in the, in the empire. And, and there's a guy named McLaren who wrote uh, like a, 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 a scholar, a biblical scholar. And, and he wrote a commentary about the city of Philippi. And here's what he wrote. He said, the connection between a Roman colony and Rome was a great deal closer than that between an English colony and England. In fact, uh, it was a bit of Rome on foreign soil. The colonists and their children were actually Roman citizens if they were born in Philippi, not Macedonian citizens. Uh, they were governed not by provincial authorities. They didn't fall under Macedonian law. They fell under Roman law. And they were under the authority of their local Roman magistrates rather than Macedonia. So think of it like a modern-day embassy. Some of us have seen a spy movie where their cover was blown and they were running for their life and they're running towards the embassy and they're like, I'm an American, open the gates, I'm an American. How many of you guys have seen a movie like that? Right? All right. Like Mission Impossible. Like his cover's blown. They're going to kill him. He's on a motorcycle. The motorcycle gets wrecked. And now he's running. And he's just yelling at the, at the Marines standing guard at the gate of the embassy, yelling, right? So I've, I've, been to, uh, I've only been to one embassy, and it was in Mon Mongolia. So here you are in the middle of the continent of Asia. And, and right in Ulaanbaatar is the American embassy. And when you, at the American embassy, everybody in there is American. And truthfully, when you're in the embassy... Mongolian laws don't apply because this is American soil in a foreign country. Does that make sense? That's what Philippi was. Philippi was Rome in Macedonia. So it attracted a lot of retired military leaders and people who loved all the advantages of living in Rome without the crime, without the chariot traffic, right? But if you wanted all the benefits of living in Rome without any of the hassles of living in Rome, you would move to a colony of Rome where you would live under all of the ro rules of Rome, not that local country. So everybody that lived in Philippi like lived in a little bubble that was different from everything around them. And so that became the number one identity through which they identified. And it was that identity that kind of informed the way they fleshed out all of the other expressions of who they were, of, of their identity. And um, uh, think of it, uh, and because it attracted so many people moving everywhere else, I think the closest thing to us here in New England would be uh, Naples uh, or Charlotte. So how many of you guys know somebody that's moved to Naples or Charlotte? Raise your hand. Uh, oh, only four of us. Okay, all right. Uh, every other service, it's been a ton. So like everybody I know that's moved out of Boston has either moved to Charlotte uh, or Naples, it, it seems like. And I, I, I would imagine that there's more people rooting for the Patriots in Charlotte than even the Carolina Panthers. But that makes sense because they're the Carolina Panthers. Anyway, um, or in Naples, I would imagine that you'd see way more Boston like Red Sox hat than hats than the even Tampa Bay Rays because there's so many New Englanders there. And that is the way that, that um, um, uh, Philippi was. Now, Philippi shows up in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. Uh, because Paul, who'd become a devoted follower of Jesus, uh, is, is a member of the church of Antioch, which makes sense because Paul wasn't raised in Israel. Uh, he was raised in a non-Jewish context. And uh, so he was a member of a church that was filled with a bunch of people who were also raised in non-Jewish context. So the church of Antioch, uh, like their, their elders were people from all over the world. There's European who's an elder. Uh, there's Roman citizens who are elders. Uh, and there's Africans who are elders of the Church of Antioch. And so the Apostle Paul had been raised in 
ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, was a member of the church that fit the culture that he was raised in most closely. And one of his buddies who had actually discipled him, uh, had mentored him spiritually speaking, was a guy named Barnabas, who also wasn't raised in Jerusalem. He was raised on the island of Cyprus. So both of these guys were Jewish, right? But like, like, but, but they had lived their whole lives around non-Jewish people. So they went to a church that had a lot of Jewish followers of Jesus in it, but also had a lot of people that were also non-Jewish. And it was in that church that the Bible says in Acts chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas uh, for, for a special thing that I want them to do. And what they did was, is they left Israel to go help other people in other parts of the Roman Empire find and follow Jesus and start churches. So where they went makes sense to me. They went to where Paul grew up, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he spent a whole bunch of time starting churches in the region that he was most familiar with. And then he comes back because there were some arguments. Because there were Jewish followers of Jesus in all these different cities in Asia Minor who were saying, well, if those non-Jews are going to become a follower of our Jewish Messiah, he's ours, Jesus is Jewish, we're Jewish, then they got to be Jewish if they want to follow our Jewish Messiah. Uh, and so that... But Paul's like, but they're like, Paul was a religious Jewish scholar himself and was actually a member of the Jewish religious high council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. So Paul's no chump when it comes to theology. And, and Paul's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's right. So then Paul, after he'd started a bunch of churches in Asia Minor, goes back to Jerusalem just to go. And what I think is awesome is that Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, still placed himself under spiritual authority. He went back to the church of Jerusalem and said, I've been telling all the non-Jews that they don't have to like, be circumcised and start observing all the Jewish festivals because they're not Jewish. They just need to turn from sin and follow Jesus. Is that right? And all the disciples in Jerusalem were like, yeah, that's right. Just make sure that they're not like jerks to Jewish people. Like don't be needlessly offensive, right? And Paul's like, oh yeah, yeah, we're, that, that's all set. So then Paul goes out on a second trip to go start churches. And on his second trip, he wants to go visit all the churches that he's already started. That's Acts chapter 16. At the beginning of the chapter, it says that, well, we tried to go to that city, but God prevented us. We tried to go to that city, God prevented us. And we don't know what happened to keep him from going to those cities. That's just what it says. And then Paul has a dream in the middle of the night. But there's a man on the other side of the Aegean. What's the, what's the, the sea in between Greece and Turkey? Is that the Aegean? Lake Superior. On the other side of lakes, I'll just make it up since you guys don't know either. Right? I could say anything. On the other side, a long pond. Right? The Nip right? If you know that little pond down there by Taunton. Anyway, um, so he has, a, he has a dream. There's a guy in Macedonia who's calling him to come over and tell him about Jesus. So he wakes up in the morning and says, I think God wants us to go, go where we've never gone before. Um, and and uh, so they got on a boat. And they, they sailed across the Aegean Sea. They go to Troas, and then they end up in the city of Philippi. That was during the middle of the week. Then Acts chapter 16 says, on the Sabbath day, the apostle Paul wanted to go down to the riverbank where he thought that there'd be some people who would gather together for prayer. Now, the only people that would be gathering together for prayer on a Sabbath day would be Jews. That's the low-hanging fruit. I can start with Jewish people because at least they're looking for the Messiah. I know who he is. They're going to be glad to see me. So he shows up at the riverbank, and it's a lady named Lydia who's from Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is like an, it's an industrial, like it, it provides the goods and services that Rome needs. One of the things that they're famous for is their dyes. Like that's, that's, that was their niche. Is like they made the dyes that they could sell for a lot of money in all the Roman Empire. 
Uh, Lydia had moved from Thyatira to Philippi and was a seller of purple. We don't know exactly if that means that she only sold the dye or if she sold uh, the textiles that were already dyed purple. We, we, we don't know, but either way, she's recognized as, as the business owner here. And in their day, women didn't have rights uh, then as, as we're accustomed to now. So the idea that they referred to Lydia as, as the seller of purple and not her husband uh, implies uh, that her husband had died and she just took over the business and nobody cared because this chick was killing it. So she's like in the aristocracy, like she's an aristocrat, like she's, she's wealthy. She's the upper echelon. Like this chick doesn't park her car, she valets her car. She knows life is too short to have bad seats or bad steak, right? Like that's Lydia. Lydia gets crap done. Lydia, like she does business, right? And, and people recognize her this way. She's got a Bible study going. Now, she's not Jewish because she's from Thyatira. So it's thought that she had either converted to Judaism or was just interested in Judaism. And Paul shows up to this lady's Bible study and goes, hey, you guys know the Holy One of Israel? Yeah, I actually know who he is. Do tell. Lydia becomes a devoted follower of Jesus on the spot. And she says, come back to my villa, you and all your crew, and you guys can, you guys have a place to stay. No, well, then you guys should come and stay with us. And the apostle Paul's like, no, 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 no. And so, but she, like, she pushed and she insisted that Paul and his, his traveling group of guys, his entourage, all come stay at her house. So this chick, she's got a mansion too. Like she is a woman of the world. Like she's Right? She got some money, right? And as a, as a widow, probably a lot of dudes in that city knew who she was. Hey, what's up? How you doing? Uh, so she comes to faith, and, and Paul and his guys stay at her villa. Uh, then, then that next week, Paul's preaching, and there's a lady following them around. Uh, she's, a, she's, a, she's a slave, and her, her master's, uh, make money off of her because she's a fortune teller. She's also demon-possessed. And she's following Paul around as a demon-possessed slave girl, and she's screaming uh, during the middle of Paul's sermons. And what she's screaming is that, this man is from God. You should listen to him. Now, I can think of a whole lot worse things a demon-possessed person could shout in the middle of a sermon. So that's not even that bad. But it became incredibly annoying to the Apostle Paul. So Paul, one day, she's screaming that everybody should listen to him because he's from God. He turns around and he rebukes the spirit that's in her and casts the demon out. So she's, she's healed. And she, oh my God, she ends up becoming a devoted follower of Jesus. But she's lost the ability to, to read fortunes. So her owners are like ticked. And they, like, they're, because like she was the golden goose and Paul killed the Roman, the, 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 the golden goose. It don't lay no more golden eggs, Right? So they're upset. They want Paul out. So they go to the magistrate, the Roman magistrate, and they say to him, this is all in chapter 16. They say to Paul, uh, they say, hey, you need to arrest them and throw them outside the city. Why? Well, they can't say, because we ain't making no more money. So what they say is because he's teaching things that are against the law and against the customs of us as Romans, which was true. Because what made Christianity illegal within the first 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus was that they taught that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, which made him equal to God, which meant that Caesar wasn't God. So that was an upset of the political status quo. So Jesus represented a threat to the emperor's influence and authority over the Romans' lives. So that was against Roman custom and against Roman law. So Paul and his buddy who was preaching with him, this guy named Silas, one of the guys he was mentoring, they get beat and then thrown in jail. 
So while they're thrown in jail, they start singing. It's all in chapter 6. And in the middle of their song, while they're singing, you ever been in like a, like a, you ever been in prison and sang before? Anybody been in prison and sang your songs? Just checking. All right. But like, uh, like I can imagine like, like the echo and stuff. It'd be really pretty. You ever heard somebody sing in like a cave or like one of those big expansive, like, like Catholic churches in Europe where like the sound all over. You ever been in a toilet and you hit the resonant note that made all the other toilets vibrate? Anybody? Anybody? Liars. Every, thank you for backing me up. Robson, I appreciate that. One honest person. You ever been humming in a restroom with like the metal dividers and you hit that note where it goes. Y'all know them? Five honest people in the room. Five honest people. The rest of y'all don't poop apparently. But Paul's singing in prison and it's just beautiful, right? Like everybody's just listening to this. In the middle of the sermon, there's an earthquake and all of the jail doors open up at the same time. <laughs> so the apostle Paul kind of like, and all the other prisoners just kind of like sneaking out to the door. And the apostle Paul sees the Roman soldier who's in charge of guard. He's the jailer. But he, this is city of, this is Rome on foreign soil. So he's a Roman soldier who's guarding, but who's also the jailer. And he knows the punishment as a Roman soldier for losing a prisoner is instant death. So he doesn't want to die shamefully. So he's going to die honorably. And he pulls out his sword and he's going to commit suicide. And Paul says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, the prisoners are going to escape. And Paul goes, no, they're not. I got, I'll, I'll take care of it. The apostle Paul talks to everybody. Like, if you want to hear the rest of this concert, you got to get your, that's beautiful. I'll go back to jail, okay. <laughs> Paul gets everybody to go back into their jail cell. And instantly the jailer's heart is like, like, I don't like what would cause you to do. And then Paul gets to share with him about Jesus and he comes to faith in Jesus. Then the next day, the magistrate comes in and says, now get out of our city. We don't want to see you back again. And Paul says, I'm not going to go away quietly. I'm a Roman citizen and you beat me without a trial. Magistrate pooped his pants. It's in the Greek, right? He got all scared. Now he's begging the Apostle Paul's forgiveness. Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Please, like, I'm so sorry. Because you, you can't beat like a Roman citizen without a trial. And he did this, right? And so he's, he's terrified. And then he says, just please leave, just please leave. Paul walks out of the jail and he doesn't leave. The Bible says he goes back to the church that had now begun gathering at Lydia's villa. So that's how this church gets started. Now, Paul's been thinking about them ever since, and he writes them this letter. Now, remember, it, it's, it's got like an, a, an aristocrat, a crazy, wealthy, rich lady who this chick snaps and people in town do stuff. This church also has a girl who's been a slave her whole life. and She's got nothing. And then it's got another army dude whose whole identity is wrapped up in the military. Like, you can't pick three people from as different of a background as what's in this church. Kind of like this one. And that's where we pick up Philippians chapter 1. Verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus. I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including to church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. It's one of the things that he prayed for them for. Verse 3. Every time I think about you, I give thanks to my God. Wouldn't that be awesome if the person that mentored you, the person who had the greatest positive influence in your life wrote you a note and said, I think about you all the time. And every time I think about you, I pray for God to bless you. Like how encouraging would that be to get that note? Wouldn't that be awesome? That'd be like, that would feel good. Verse four, 
And whenever I pray, I make a request for you, for all of you with joy. That's, then he says, and every time I pray, I pray for you. Like that would be awesome. If your mentor wrote you a note and just said, every time I pray, I always add you in there, just that God would bless you. I'm so grateful for you. Verse five, uh, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So there's things in here that Paul says that I think are specific to the church of Philippi. And that is that I pray for you all the time. Paul doesn't pray for Sean. Paul's in the presence of God. There's only one mediator, the Bible says, between Sean and God, and that's Jesus. And the Bible says there's only one person who prays for me in the presence of God, and that's the Holy Spirit, right? So the apostle Paul ain't thinking about Sean right now at all. So that part is not for me. That part was for the Philippians only. But there's something that Paul said that I think is for more than just the Philippians. There's a, and my sermon is over. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a part of, of, of this that's for this, the Philippians specifically, and a part of this, the principle behind this is for everybody. And, and that's in verse six, and here's what it says. Verse six says this, um, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So for those of us who've given God our canvas, what the Apostle Paul says is those of you who gave God your canvas, he's not going to stop working on the masterpiece until it's finished. And I find encouragement in that because of the parts of my life that I know are broken, I'm not the only one who's trying to fix them. Like I'm not alone in this. Like you want to be a better person. And what's really neat is that you aren't the only person who's trying to actually help that happen. That God knows all of the ways in which you're insecure. God knows how you feel insecure as a husband, as a wife, as a single person, as a divorced person, as a widow, as a widower. Right? As, a, as an employee, as an employer, as a rich person, as a poor person. God knows the guilt and the shame that you're still carrying that's negatively impacting the choices that you're making. And he knows the parts of your identity that are threatening you and holding you back from becoming... Like He knows every part of you. And according to Paul, God is right now still... Like, he's, like some of you, I, I have been in this place where you get so discouraged that you're still so messed up that you just quit trying. I don't know if you've ever been in that. Sorry. <clears throat> but the good news is that even if you've stopped trying, you gave up on being a better husband. You gave up on being able to reconcile yourself to your past. The cool thing is, sorry, even if you've given up fixing you, God's still at work behind the scenes trying to turn this into a beautiful work of art, even if you threw down the paintbrush a long time ago. And that's encouraging to me. And it, and, it, and it should be to you also. God who began the good work within you will continue to work until it is finished. And this is why you feel bad when you sin. Because God's at work within you. It's also the reason why you feel incredibly fulfilled when you serve or when you do something selfless. Because God's at work right now within you. This is why we feel a tug back to God when we wander 
away from God because He's at work within you. And that's why our hearts are filled when we worship with our church family after being gone for a long time because God's at work within, within you. It's why God comes to mind when you're all alone and you're still in quiet. It's the reason why we groan when we see injustice, poverty, loneliness, and spiritual depravity. It's why our hearts groan over that kind of stuff. It's because God's at work within us. It's why we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Paul gets to the crescendo of his introduction in verse 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 1. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. And here's the crescendo. Here's the, like the, like the, the this is the theme for the book of Philippians. And this is what we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking. Verse 21. For to me, living means living for Christ. That's the idea. That for me, to live is Christ. Now, okay, that sounds great. You just told me this. That, that's the secret of getting to the end of your life and saying that I've learned the secret and no matter what circumstance I'm in, to be con completely content with where I'm at. I'm going to get to the end of this ride and realize it was an amazing ride, perfectly designed for me. The secret to that is for me to live is Christ. We're going to explain part of this in just a second, but the next three weeks we're going to unpack this. Basically, the idea is the secret is you living your life the way that Jesus would live your life. That's what it means. But then he adds this weird thing at the end where he says, and dying would even be better, which is a weird thing to add to the end of a sermon. Like, I want to live for Christ or die and death would be better. It's a weird thing to say. Paul's not suicidal here. He's just saying that entering the presence of Jesus would be the single greatest thing to happen to him. That's all. He wasn't afraid of death. Uh, there are two contractors at my house this week. We were taking down. We could never do We've lived. Our, our house has not been touched since 1919 when it was built. And my wife is like, the longer we've lived there, the, like I just, I just, this needs to be fixed. And, but we got kids and our kids take all of our stupid money. Holy cow. The best thing about your kids moving out when they get older is you get to keep your money. All the empty nesters say amen. Right? Like that's, woo! Like I get to buy me something. Right? So we're taking out the middle wall. That's, I'm buying Billy something. That's what I'm doing. We're taking out the middle wall. And so the two guys that were there, one of them is a follower of Jesus and he goes to our church. He's a member of Grace Church. And the other guy is his best friend. They own the company together and he's not a devoted follower of Jesus and he's kind of struggling with what he believes about God. So they're in the house and we're talking about the wall and the beam and then the lolly column that has to, lolly, 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 lolly column that needs to go under in the basement underneath the beam that's going to support the second floor because we just took out the wall out of the middle of the house. And in the middle of this conversation about the beam and the lolly column and all this kind of stuff, he goes, Sean, you're always saying in church about uh, all the evidences for why we believe in God, why Jesus rose from the dead and why the Bible is true. Tell him. That's the stinkiest part about being a preacher is that you're always put on the spot. Okay, let me go into a 15-minute sermon while you just sit there and be quiet. Like, that's what he's asking me to do. And, and so, as I think the easiest thing would be like, here's the reason why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because in my 20s, only reason why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead is because the Bible said so. I was like, what if the Bible is, is wrong? Like, because like, like all of Christianity hangs on Jesus resurrecting from the dead. And that's not even a matter of religion. 
Like theology has nothing to do with Jesus raising from the dead. Like either Jesus really did raise from the dead or he really didn't. That has nothing to do with religion. That's a matter of history. Either he did or he didn't. Does that make sense? Either he did or he didn't. So there are three reasons why I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and has nothing to do with the Bible. So I, I kind of walked him through these and he's asking questions back. It's a really cool conversation. And then the third thing that I told him, the third reason is that when it became illegal to be a Christian, uh, all the people who had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead were tortured to death. And all they had to do to not be tortured to death is say that they were making it up. But they didn't. That don't make any sense. Like if they were, people will die for a lie they believe, but nobody dies for a lie they made up. Because if you and I made up a religion that became illegal and we we're going to be tortured to death, unless we change our mind, I'd roll on you so stinking fast. I would say it was your idea. We were just kidding. Didn't know you guys would take it so serious. <laughs> what would it take for me to actually be tortured? So what are the odds that none of us would roll on each other? If just three of us, the odds would be zero. One of us is rolling. But the idea that hundreds of them, thousands of them were tortured to death and none of them changed their mind, changed their story. Like the only thing that makes any sense is that as implausible as it is, the only plausible thing is that Jesus must have risen from the dead. That was the third thing. And he goes, why didn't they lie? Like if they, even if they knew Jesus had resurrected from the dead, why didn't they go ahead and say that they were teasing so they wouldn't be tortured to death? And I said, because they weren't afraid to die anymore because they had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's the reason why Christians look at death differently. It's also the reason why we look at life differently. But Paul tells every person from every walk of life that the one identity that they all share through which all other expressions of their identity should be informed is that they are to live as Jesus would live in their shoes. So what he's basically saying to Lydia is that, Lydia, you're not a wealthy Christian. You're a Christian who happens to have a lot of money. That changes what she does with her money. You don't sprinkle some Christianity on your wealth. You are a devoted follower of Jesus, and that now tells you what to do with your wealth. Right? It's not that you are a wealthy Christian, Lydia. It's that you are a representation of Jesus. What would Jesus do with your wealth? Because that is the secret to you getting to the end of your life and saying, I've learned the secret to be content, to being happy. It's to live as Christ. That's the secret. That's what he says. And he says to the slave girl who owns nothing, that you're not a poor Christian. You're a Christian who has nothing to lose. Girl, run. Like anything God puts in your heart, like you don't even have to wait for your house to sell because you own a house. You have the freedom to do any crazy fool thing God puts in your head. That's what you are. You're, you're a follower of Jesus with nothing to lose. And he says to the, to the Roman, to, to the, to the jailer, you're not a Roman Christian, Mr. Jailer. You're a Christian who happens to still live and work with a ton of Romans who need Jesus. So how would Jesus be a Roman soldier? So what does this look like? And what does this mean that I need to start doing? And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks. But the last thing I want to share you is the first switch that has to change. That if you can't switch this switch, if you can't flip this switch, then nothing else we say in this series is going to matter. And that's in verse 27. It's just one verse. 
We're going to look at this before we close. Romans 1.27. Above all, above everything else, the most important thing that he says, like there's going to be, what he does in the book of Philippians is he says, I'm going to give you four checklists. And as long as at this stage in your life, you can say that's true, this is true, this is true, and this is true, you can be confident that you are right now living in the masterpiece that you were created to be. Like that's where your contentment comes. Like when your friend gets to become the pastor of the most influential church in the entire world, right? Like you really can be okay with that, knowing that you are right now exactly where God wanted you to do, doing exactly what you were created to do. And that becomes very fulfilling, right? Here's the switch, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again in person or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Above all, he says, above all, I'm a citizen of heaven, conducting myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. What this means is that my lifestyle my sexuality, my spending habits, my voting record, my activism, my educational pursuits, my career objectives, and my financial goals must be worthy of Jesus. And I would imagine that if you are a devoted follower of Jesus and you are even somewhat self-aware, you can think of some aspect of your identity that is not worthy of Jesus. And if you are unwilling to address that, nothing else I say in this series is going to make a difference. Because you won't even acknowledge the area of your life that you already know is being scribbled on. You don't bring Christianity into your other identities. You bury all of your identities with Christ. And now all expressions of your identity flow from what he would want you to do instead. The truth is my money, my sexuality, my patriotism, my gender, my education, and my ethnicity represent potential threats to my true identity in Christ. But if you and I were to see ourselves first as the expression of the life of Jesus in my place, then the way that I handled those other things would become holy and healthy parts of my life, not distractions. If I saw myself first as a representation of Jesus, then that would change the way I lived out all of my other expressions. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, expounding on this, says, You are Christ's ambassador. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So you're not just a teacher. You're an ambassador of Jesus to your students and to the teachers' union. How would Jesus handle that classroom? And how would he present himself with the rest of the union? You are not just a resident of Stoughton, and I am not just a resident on Seaver Street. I am now an ambassador to all of the other people on Seaver Street. So if I see myself not as just a Christian who happens to live on Seaver Street in Stoughton, I don't want to give you my address, so I'm thinking about giving you Dave Massarelli's address. He's across the street. Right? But if I'm now an ambassador of Jesus on Seaver Street, that changes what I do this summer in my yard, doesn't it? Because if I'm just a Christian on Seaver Street, then I go about my business, just be nice to people. 
But if I am an ambassador for Jesus on Seaver Street, now I have a responsibility to my neighbors that I didn't have before. Before, just be a nice guy because I'm a Christian Stoughton resident. No, I'm a representative of Jesus in Stoughton. So as a representative of Jesus on Seaver Street, I now have an obligation that I didn't have before. For me, I know what that looks like. Block parties, cookouts, where I'm going to intentionally create opportunities to get to know other people on my street because I'm now an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who goes to another person on their behalf. So I've got to create opportunities for me to make friends with the people that need Jesus because I'm not just a Christian Stoughton resident. I'm an ambassador of Jesus in Stoughton, so that changes things. You're not just a second baseman in summer baseball. You're a student ambassador of Jesus to all of the other athletes in summer sports. You're not just a Democrat or a Republican. You're an ambassador of Jesus to the Democratic Party. You're an ambassador of Jesus to the Republican Party. And I'll bet you Jesus would say some things to those groups of people. <laughs> right? So as followers of Jesus, we are first and always representing the way of Jesus. We're representing obedience to the Holy Spirit. We're representing the love of God. Why? Because I'm not just a Stoughton resident. I'm not just an American citizen. I'm not just a white guy. I'm not just a member of the Democratic or Republican Party. I'm a citizen of heaven, and I have a responsibility. And because I'm a citizen of heaven, that handles, that informs the way that I vote. Republicans and Democrats don't tell me who to vote for. My conscience before God does. And sometimes that's at odds with the party I'm registered with. And I got to be okay with that. That also informs my whiteness. Like, am I more Christian or am I more American? Because there are some things about my Christian faith that are at odds with the American ethic. And I just offended all y'all, apparently, with that one. But this is why Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is now no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. It's not that you stop being Jewish when you become a follower of Jesus, or that you're no longer a Gentile when you're a follower of Jesus, or that you're no longer biologically a male or a female. It's just that those things do not inform. It's no longer that you're, you're white or black, and you are either white, black, or brown, or some other shade of melanin. But those things do not matter nearly as much as your identity in Christ and your responsibility to live your whiteness, your blackness, your brownness, the way Jesus would live that in your shoe. My number one identity is not my whiteness, not my politics, not my finances, not my ranking on the socioeconomic ladder. My number one identity is that I'm a follower of Jesus and that ought to inform everything. That ought to change my money, that ought to change my politics, it ought to change my sexuality, it ought to change my family. If I'm a devoted follower of Jesus and I see myself as an ambassador of Jesus, that begins to change everything else about the people that we are. And that's how we end up becoming the masterpiece that all of us are honestly trying to get to anyway. So I'm going to ask you to identify the area of your life, your identity, that most not represents the way of Jesus because only you can do something about that. Let's pray. God, I love you with all of my heart, and I'm thankful that you don't just leave us to our own devices to figure out how to become better people, but that you're actually involved in this. 
that you are the one who came up with the idea of us. And then you have created the perfect picture of the perfect life that all of us are trying to get, but just some of us without you. Maybe you're at a place where God doesn't own your canvas at all. You're still just scrubbling all over it, trying your best to make something make sense. And when you get to the end of trying to be the hero of your own heart, my hope is that you would turn to God and say, God, take him. Jesus, I accept that your death, burial, and resurrection cleans this mess off of my canvas. And I'm asking you, because of your resurrection with a new life, to give me a new life. To make my clan canvas a blank slate. And I'm asking you to redraw anything you want on here. Maybe that's your prayer. God, take my canvas. Save me from the mess that I'm making. I'm yours. If you're a devoted follower of Jesus, I would bet that there's a part of your canvas that you ain't letting God draw on. There's some things about you you don't want him messing with. And that's going to be the thing that keeps you from becoming the person you were created to be. And you need to be willing to let that go. I can't let that go for you. That's you. So maybe it is your sexuality. Maybe it is your socioeconomic position. Maybe it is your career goals or your status among your peers. I don't know what it is that's more important to you than your faith. I'm asking you to ask God to take over that part of your life too. God, let your will be done in us and over the next few weeks, help us to figure out what that's going to actually look like in every area of our life. This is the prayer I'm making, not just for myself, but everybody else who is here. And this is the prayer that we are making. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and we all say together, amen.